Welcome to Sidectic Residency Edition. This is Dr. O, and I am excited to talk to you again about brain networks, and then also a little bit about some philosophy of science. Now, I could say that no one in their right mind would claim that the content in this podcast speaks for them, but honestly, I don't know whether they would or not, and that's the point. I speak for myself. My opinions are my own and should not be confused with those of anyone else. And today, as a special surprise, I have another original poem for you. But don't worry, it's not a limerick this time. Also, it's very short, so please don't hit skip just yet. I call it a cinch. I turn this wrench to cinch this bolt upon the bench, and clinch the wood just right. I must mention it's not my intention to clinch in one bolt too tight. In previous episodes, I've tried to draw pictures in your mind, using those fat crayons that babies like to chew on, of some of the brain networks that are important in many mental illnesses. We've talked specifically about the default mode network, that network that's concerned with imaginal thoughts and self-references and um, putting ourselves in the context of things and memories. And the dorsal and ventral attention networks that help us like identify and pick out details from our environment and give our attention to those things. The salience network that brings the most important details um, of our perceptions, thoughts, and memories to the forefront of our mind. But what we're missing is a network that takes those salient things, considers alternative options about what they mean and what to do about them, organizes a plan to execute, and then motivates us to do something. We need a network that can cinch a bench. Our central executive network and its connections to the other networks are integral in these processes. According to most of the sources I've checked, for example, some of the papers and web pages cited at the end of the show transcript found at sidactic.buzzsprout.com, the central executive network is responsible for active tasks involved with working memory, organized processing of new and remembered information, integration of information from other brain networks, rule-based problem-solving, say that ten times fast, consideration of multiple things in a reasonable sequence, organizing our responses to these things, and reinforcement of visually perceived behaviors in ourselves and others. Now that's a lot of things, many of which sound a lot like the other things. So to summarize, the central executive network is able to take a lot of information, store it in our working memory, scan what we think about it and what we feel about it, and help us to make decisions about what to do about it. Some call it our external mind because it's 
supposedly primarily concerned with what's going on around us or could go on around us, while our default mode network is our internal mind because it attends to our internal states. But this dichotomy, I think, has limited utility. Our working memory, which is controlled uh, in a large degree by our central executive network, needs access to the details of our senses, how these things relate to us, uh, how the outcomes of our actions will relate to us. And it's likely that our networks are s switching frequently. Goals require more than accessible, organized lists of things. They require the ability to place those outcomes we're planning into a context and switch between possible outcomes when that context changes. That involves lots of networks. The central executive network, like the other networks I've discussed, is not confined to one lobe of the brain or a single area. That's because to do brainy things requires multiple inputs, multiple processors, and multiple outputs, and an intricate balance between these things communicating with each other. Having an area that can identify shapes is useless if it can't be assigned some kind of importance and you don't know how to do anything about it. So, Some call the central executive network the frontoparietal network, which is from an anatomical perspective and helps us to orient ourselves to its primary locations, the frontal lobes and the parietal lobes. But these are both big areas, so let's get a little more granular. The central executive network has also been called the lateral frontoparietal network. It's primarily composed of the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and posterior parietal cortex, or lateral posterior parietal cortex. The lateral parts are uh, the outside parts of your brain you could think of, the, the parts near the skull, not the more medial parts that are located on the surface of the brain where it kind of folds into the center of your cranium. That's why traumatic brain injuries, for instance, can mess with the central executive network so easily. If the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex smashes into the bone, it doesn't work so well after that. I want to take a moment to mention that the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is a target for treatment-resistant depression. If you remember way back to the TMS episodes, targeting the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex with high-frequency theta bursts has been shown to be pretty effective in treating treatment-resistant depression. But that's not the only thing the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex can affect. Damage to this area can also result in the development of obsessive-like repetitive behaviors, loss of motivation, reduced speech, poor concentration, inability to complete complex tasks, and even in what one paper termed Machiavellian tendencies, or the inability to trust other people. Now, that's a lot of claims, uh, and I'm not sure that we really understand exactly what it does, but it just means that they've looked into it and they found a lot of associations with the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and these kinds of behaviors. But what does the parietal part do? 
that lateral posterior parietal cortex, seems to be involved in attending to sensory information, both external and internal. By attending, I mean it helps maintain attention on perceptual experiences, both from the world outside and from within our own bodies, like our organs and um, our pain. I wonder how or if this lateral posterior parietal cortex is involved in somatic symptom disorders, when patients are preoccupied with their internal perceptual experiences. This is very similar to how the parietal lobe in general is reported to function in the salience network and in other attention networks. It seems our parietal lobe as a whole like really helps us to pay attention to things. The central executive network, then, is distinguished from other networks in that it's very task- or problem-focused, so our attention is problem-focused and task-focused, and if I want to do something, I really want this network to be functioning well. If I want to ponder something, I probably want my default mode network to function well. But I don't want to get stuck there, and I also don't want to get stuck in, like, obsessive planning, either. If I want to understand what details are important, I need my salience network functioning well. If I want to experience the world, I need my sensory networks working well. If I need to be able to pick out the details of the environment, I need my attention networks functioning well. In the last episode, I mentioned that neuroscientists have been very interested in the interplay of three networks, the central executive network, the salience network, and the default mode network, because these are all frequently involved in many neuropsychiatric disorders. They call this the triple network model. I should take a break here and consent the listener to the fact that I am not a neuroscientist. I have a master's degree in evolutionary biology and a medical degree. I'm just an older-than-usual psychiatry resident. When I read the papers that report that I report in these episodes, I constantly reach the limits of my knowledge, and I really struggle to put the pieces together. Science produces difficult technical language. That being said, in future episodes, I'm going to try to put some of these pieces together the best that I can. I believe that science is a slow, meticulous process that's infuriating at times. Whether this triple network model is going to stand the test of, going to stand the test of time is less important to me than whether it's the next step to help us understand how our brain works. I fully expect it to fail in many ways, but it is adding important clues to our thinking. Our behaviors are obviously outward manifestations of our individual expressions of our internalized biopsychosocial cultural context, but 
there is a reason that bio is the first part of the biopsychosocial cultural formulations that we make. The bio drives the patient. Honestly, we might as well discard the psycho from bio-psycho because it's redundant in my opinion. But I'm sure there are many people out there that would argue against that. If you can't tell, we're in the... We're in the more philosophical part of this podcast right now. I believe there's no psychological without the biological, except for those who believe that our minds exist independently of our bodies. I think it's a pretty safe bet. I want to pause now and lay down a thicker layer of philosophical jelly on the toast that I just made. Recently, I've encountered a lot of papers that argue against something that's called biological psychiatry. There's even a journal called Biological Psychiatry. Psychiatry may well be the only field of medicine where there are biological practitioners and not biological ones. I'm confused by this. I know there's a long history here. And I'm not going to do it that much justice. But I think it's worth talking about anyway. I've read that the, quote, biological psychiatry research has failed to provide any new or innovative treatments since its inception when we finally found some effective psychotropic medications and started making hypotheses about neurotransmitters. There was even a recent paper in Nature's Molecular Psychiatry called The Serotonin Theory of Depression, a Systematic Umbrella Review of the Evidence. Now, I would argue that there was never a serotonin theory of depression to begin with. It was, at best, a crude model or a hypothesis. The fact that it was ever referred to as a theory bothers me deeply. It also reveals a larger misunderstanding among psychiatry about what a theory is. We even refer to Sigmund Freud's speculations about the human mind as Freudian theory. I would suggest that he never even approached a theory. I bring this up in this episode because I'm talking about a hypothesized executive network that helps us to make decisions, plan, organize ourselves, and accomplish goals. It supposedly works primarily with two other brain regions to result in behaviors. If someone were to call this the triple network theory instead of the triple network model at this point, that would be laughable. Psychology and psychiatry and its numerable theories are the frequent butt of jokes, but more importantly, of eye-rolling. Probably the most relevant example of psychiatry's highly imprecise use of language with respect to science is the biopsychosocial model, also expanded the biopsychosocial cultural spiritual model, among others. The strangest thing about this model to me is that it's called a model. Models in science use some kind of quantitative measures or qualitative measures attached to some sort of quantitative meaning to make predictions. 
But the biopsychosocial model has no mathematical basis by which to test its validity and is therefore not really even a model, except to those of us with the hubris to think that we can model the world in our own mind without actually having a clear way to communicate that model and reproduce its results. It is, I would propose, a desperate attempt to understand our patients, which has its own value. That value, however, is not a model. The biopsychosocial cultural perspective is more aligned with ethics than science, and I'm not trying to say that ethics are bad. I'm just saying it's not a model. I'm a scientific person, and my main concern is that the bio or psycho or social or cultural or spiritual aspects of any treatment are found to be firmly guided by scientific exploration, in that the results are reproducible, and this treatment scope is limited to the evidence for it. This is often not the case, especially in psychology and psychiatry, which has a long track record of poor reproducibility. Science is difficult, often thankless, and frequently criticized as impossibly slow to progress. Although there's also the opposite media-centered view of science as something nearly effortless and magical. But science is slow and mundane, is probably a more accurate depiction. Psychology is also complex and changing through time, even for an individual. Our predictions now are poor at best, even at a population level. Meteorologists are far better at predicting the weather than a psychological model, any kind of psychological model, is at predicting how people will act despite all the claims you hear on the TED Talks on YouTube. I talk about brain networks because these concepts appear to be a next step into understanding how we think and behave and give us insights into new possible treatments. I have far more confidence in the future of brain networks than I do in Freudian theory or any of the other highly speculative psychological hypotheses. The most effective scientists are looking to answer very limited questions, not to build a model of everything. Networking models are slowly piecing together minute details about how the brain functions. The triple network is a model because it has predictability. Your brain behaves in predictable ways. But I don't want to give you the impression that we're close to figuring everything out. I'm not even sure we would know if we were. We're finding out more and more exactly what we don't know, and that's a great step in starting to know it. But if anyone tells you that understanding our biology with res 
respect to our thoughts and behaviors is a nearly pointless venture. Tell them Dr. O respectfully disagrees. If we're humble about it and attempt to prove ourselves wrong instead of proving ourselves right and focus on one question at a time, we might have a fighting chance. I am Dr. Rowe, and this has been an episode of Psydactic Residency Edition. Bye.